This is Life, Body, Business, Impact with Fatima. Welcome, friends. I am so grateful to have you here. I'm your host, Fatima Ingalls, fitness expert, best-selling author, lifestyle entrepreneur, founder of the Life, Body, Business, Fit Systems, and co-founder of the amazing Freedom Retreats. My mission is to positively impact 10 million lives, to inspire you to wake up and live from your bucket list of dreams instead of waking up one day with a bucket list of regrets. Get ready to be inspired with weekly episodes and interviews that disrupt your thinking and motivate you to build your best life, body and business. To change one life is to change many. So come with me now and let's get started with yours. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Fatima, and today I am joined by the lovely lass from across the waters, Diane McKay. Originally from rural Ireland, Diane relocated to Sydney with her husband in 1999, where they now live with their daughter. Diane McKay is founder and director of The Happy Path, which supports individuals and organisations through change. She's a catalyst for positive change in the corporate world, a PROSI accredited change practitioner, she's a certified life coach and mental health first aider. Sought after by individuals and organisations across the globe, Diane identifies simple strategies to navigate through complex change. Diane has worked with blue chip organisations including Abbott, Cisco Systems, Campbell's Soup and Arnott's Biscuits. She was awarded the Global Best Practices Award by the software giant SAP for Harmony, 37 multi-million dollar initiative impacting 3,000 people over 18 months. As a change coach, Diane engages in courageous conversations to unearth barriers to change, limiting beliefs and unfulfilled desires for success and happiness. Her clients understand that to thrive effective organizational change, they also need to drive personal change. Diane's keynote speech, Reframing Duty of Care, draws on her personal organizational change expertise and her personal experience with mental health illness. In her speech, Diane shares three guiding principles of care, care for self, care for others, and courageous conversations. It's so wonderful to have you here, Diane. Welcome. Thank you so much, Fatima. Delighted to be on your podcast. I'd love for you to share with our audience a little bit more about yourself and how you came to be working in the arena that you are. Sure, yeah. Um, it's a little bit of a meandering career path. Um, I started out, so as you mentioned, I'm from rural Ireland, Um from a very small fishing village there but I um, decided to go to college and study analytical chemistry and that was the beginnings of my career. From there I um, I actually got quite sick in the workplace when I moved to Australia in 99. I started getting a reaction to some of the chemicals I was working with and I had my first career change. So I moved from analytical chemistry uh, working in labs to working in the IT and I chose IT because I didn't want to go back to, to university for another four years and it was the easiest thing to, to study and get my teeth sunk into. Then through probably 10 years of working in IT, I naturally migrated into organisational change and had another 10 years uh, working with organisational uh, organizational change, predominantly working with um, within large corporate organisations and focusing on technology-driven change. And uh, recently, in the last two years, I've branched out into starting my own organization where I now focus um, all of my energies on helping individuals and organizations through change. Wonderful. Uh, what actually brought you to Australia? I'm interested to know. Ah, okay. Um, so myself and my husband, or back then boyfriend, 
we just had plans to go and travel. My husband at the time worked in Kazakhstan and I was working in, in Ireland. And it was like, OK, we just wanted to spend more time together, travel the globe. He wanted to go to the US first. I wanted to go to Australia. So it was um, he who influenced most. And it turned out that that was me. So we arrived uh, in Australia because the Olympics were on in 99 and the uh, well, sorry, for the 2000 and the millennium. So, you know, Australia won hands down. But we uh, we fell in love with it and yeah, haven't left since. It's now home for us. Oh, we're, we're so happy that you're here with us in Australia, Diane. Really like to ask you, what is a mental health first aider? Okay, yes. So, so yeah, it's, it's, it's actually something recent that I have done. So it, it was something that I was particularly aware that there was. So I'm sure you're familiar, like a lot of people are, with uh, mental, physical mental health first aiders. And, you know, there's a lot of organisations that just have mental health, or sorry, that have physical first aiders in their organisation. So if you end up having a sprain or paper cuts or, um, you know, even if you've worn those brand new high heels and you need a, you know, you've got a blister that needs a plaster, you go straight to your first aider. So now what's happening, particularly in the workplaces, we're starting to see more and more places come on board with mental health first aid. And they like the physical ones, but they're actually helping people who have emerging mental health problems. So that is something that um, larger organisations um, and corporates are now bringing into their uh, first aid area? They are. It's slow. I will say it's happening a lot slower than I would like to see. Um, anyone can go and do this, and I highly recommend it to anyone, just if you are supporting either yourself or other people with um, with mental health issues. But, yes, uh, more and more organisations are trying to break that their mental health planning. Okay. I'd like to also speak about um, reframing duty of care. From an organisational perspective, can you tell us a little bit more about what that means? Because I know there are a lot of people out there who are obviously working in the corporate world. Yeah, yeah. So I think if I just um, set the kind of larger scene, first of all, so once upon a time in the corporate workplace, and I'm sure outside the corporate arena as well, we used to have, you know, change and, you know, times of high stress or high activity coming at us in waves. So whether that was, you know, the end of financial year or a big project that's an initiative that was been worked on by the organisation. And those those waves are now no longer waves. We're just in, in this era, which is constant, never-ending pain. You know, it's no longer acceptable to kind of and cry and ask our people to go the extra mile. And the reason it's no longer, you know, something that we should do as leaders is because mental health is in decline across Australia, across the globe. And we're now in a state where 20% of our workforce will have a mental health issue in any given year. So as leaders in organisations, we know that we have a duty of care to our people, but we focus a lot on the duty side of it, not necessarily on the care and on that real human to human connection. So duty of care, what I'm um, working with organisations to do and with leaders within those organisations is to help them reframe duty of care. So they're focusing that little bit more on care factor, just prove their overall mental well-being within their organisations. Okay, so how do they do that? How do you work with them to do that? Yeah, so the care aspect for the mental health um, of their employees. Yeah, so there's because of my own personal experiences. Um, so like I've worked in organisational change for for over ten years and have done you know huge programs across some uh, global corporate organisations. But I also have suffered with mental health um, issues myself. So I've struggled with my mental health since I was a teenager, and um, I had uh, you know a pretty spectacular breakdown in the in the workplace myself. Um, it's probably about two and a half three years ago now. 
And as part of my recovery coming out of that, I took time to analyze, you know, both my professional experiences and my personal, you know, deeply personal um, experience of having a breakdown to see what can I learn from this to work with organizations to, to help them not make the same mistakes that I have and help leaders who have people in their teams who have um, mental health conditions. There's a module completely focuses on caring for yourself and taking responsibility for your own mental health and well-being. Then care for others, which is about showing empathy towards others and, you know, checking in with those around you. And then where the magic happens, which is around having courageous conversations. So if I'm someone in the workplace who is suffering with a mental health condition, I'm going to need to care for myself and take responsibility for myself first. But if I'm a person in an organization who notices someone who's not doing so good, who's behaving differently or just not quite themselves, that I care enough to, you know, to look out for them and that I tap them on the shoulder and say, hey, Bob, how are you feeling? Would you like to go for a coffee? Just checking in and having that courageous conversation. This reframing duty of care with those three guiding principles gives a framework for organizations to be able to work through with their leaders and with their people. Okay, Diane, so um, can you tell us a little bit more about what happened with your mental health breakdown in the workplace? You said that was about two and a half years ago. What do you feel led to that and triggered um, in terms of your own personal self-care or lack thereof? Yeah, yeah. It's um, So around that time, so like I've said, I've struggled with my mental health since my teenage years. So, you know, all the ups and downs that go with that. But what um, it seemed that I like with hindsight, which is a wonderful thing, I look back now and I realize I was not taking responsibility for my care for self. I was allowing myself to throw myself into my work um, to not really, you know, wasn't taking lunch breaks, was working ridiculous hours. Um, I was also like I suffered with panic attacks um, and anxiety, which were getting worse and worse. And I was spiraling deeper and deeper into depression. And one of the hardest things was that I was really going into the workplace and putting on a mask every day. You know, that I'm fine. I'm OK. And, you know, just soldier on, get all of this done. But that came at the expense of coming home in the evening and just having nothing left to give my family. Um, so I really was vacant and empty uh, coming home to my then six-year-old daughter and to my husband. And when you've got a little six-year-old looking up at you for, you know, for their basic needs for life and you're in a place where you're not able to provide that to them, that was definitely part of the wake-up call for me that just made me realise, okay, if I'm going to be there for my family, I need to do something drastic to help myself. And I'm used to being the problem solver. I'm the go-to girl to get, you know, big, hairy, complex projects done. But I knew that I needed help with this. I was not going to be able to solve this one on my own. Yeah, so in relation to that, it seems that you ran yourself completely empty. And one of my philosophies is, you know, it is not um, selfish to put yourself first. Um, It is actually selfless because we can't give to anyone else and all the people who who need us like our families and children if we are running ourselves on empty. So it's important to give to yourself first. So it sounds from that that you, you weren't really giving to yourself, you weren't taking care of your physical, mental and emotional needs? Absolutely not. And it's and it's what I know, too, is that back then, when like I think when my mental health was at its worst, your world seems to get very small. It really comes. You're really living inside your head, inside your body. Every, you know, your gaze is downwards and there are things that, you know, but you don't do. Um, and one of those things was that taking care of myself. I felt like I needed to be responsible for everyone else first and myself last. And, you know, I think a lot of mums do 
be a lot of Irish people seem to do that as well. So for me, that was something that I now try to help other people recognize early and put, you know, plans in place so they do understand what those triggers are when their mental health is in decline and have a proactive plan towards looking after themselves. So what do you do now? Because it's great that you've recognized that and that you are helping other people not to um, go down the same path that you did in relation to having that mental health breakdown. Um, I've been there, done that as well, not in the corporate sector, but, you know, in, in other areas of life and run myself completely empty, even knowing that, even knowing what I need to do over the last few years, there have been a few occasions where life has been so busy and without even realizing it, I had run myself almost empty. I, you know, got a little wake up every now and then going, hold on, I'm giving, 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 and I'm forgetting to give back enough to myself. So I've had to, you know, put the brakes on and go, right, it's got to be all about me right now because I can't give anything more to you, um, to my children, to even to clients. You know, yeah. I can't give of give the best of myself to my clients if I'm not first taking care of myself. So, and I know you um completely understand that. So what do you do now to to give to yourself in terms of your physical, mental, emotional health? And do you feel any guilt around it? Have have you felt guilt around it in the past? That's a very big one. It is indeed because it is that, you know, going from selfish to selfless. And I love how you frame that because that is, it is, it is such a huge mindset shift to get into that. And, you know, while I am very disciplined in my self-care now, I still, of course, feel guilty. Like yesterday I was feeling guilty for going off for an hour's walk when, you know, my daughter's on school holidays. And I'm thinking, okay, I should be spending more time with her. But it's like, no, I can be a better parent when I spend, when I spend time on me, then I have more to give. But for me, I like my my self-care is actually very basic. And this is what I find that, you know, we only tap into what's required for us. So for me, it's simple things. And I will say that, you know, when I look at, you know, how fantastic you are with your your fitness and how, you know, just how strong and how passionate and dedicated you are from a fitness perspective. And I am the complete opposite end of the spectrum. I am someone who likes walking and yoga walking in nature, meditation, which is a huge thing um, that really has, has changed my life. Every day I do gratitudes and appreciations. And um, it's something that I talk a lot with my clients about because a lot of people have heard about doing gratitudes, which is, you know, what am I thankful for? Or what am I grateful for? But appreciations also, you know, having people write three to five things that they appreciate about themselves, um, which is quite difficult because you have to, you know, reflect back on yourself and saying, hey, what am I doing well? You know, and Australians and Irish people are not very good at giving them themselves a clap on the back so so one of the other things that I that I practice myself and I really encourage with my coaching clients is to do three to five gratitudes and appreciations every day so a lot of people practice you know gratitude journals or writing down what they're grateful for but one of the things that I also do is three to five things that I appreciate about myself and I find this difficult when I started doing it. A lot, a lot of my clients struggle with it as well, because you have to really reflect inwardly and give yourself that clap on the back for things that you've done that you're proud of. And they don't have to be big things. They can just be, you know, if you're really struggling with your mental health, I got out of bed today or I had a shower today or it could be, yay, I want a new client. Any sort of thing that you did for yourself that you're proud of, not just gratitude for circumstances and other people. So I do that on a on a daily basis. The other big thing that I, I focus on is what I call positive inputs. Um, and I literally have cut out so much negative inputs in my life. So now I'm listening to inspirational podcasts, audiobooks, TED Talks, uh, doing a lot of learning and development to expand my um, my knowledge and my thinking. 
but also the people that I choose to spend time with. So am I spending time with people that are making me feel good? And a lot of what I do is tapping into how happy I feel. So if something makes me feel happy, feel good, let's get more of that. And if it's something that's not making me feel happy, then, you know, I make conscious decisions about whether I want to keep that in my life or not. I agree with you. It's so, so important. Um, you see the most successful people, you know, you look at who they're surrounded, they've surrounded themselves with, you know, um, it's it's also modelling. And I love how you put it, positive inputs and cutting out the negative inputs. So I talk to my clients a lot about, you know, even things such as the news and the radio. What are you listening to? What are you filling your mind with? How does it make you feel? The news for me, it made me feel depressed. So years ago, maybe eight years ago when I was suffering, um, probably the peak of my mental health issues, I decided to turn the news off and the radio because it was 99% bad and it made me feel even worse than what I already did. So I did what you're describing here. I looked for the positive inputs, whether that was from audios and books or just being around um, people who who were positive and doing great things. And I wanted to feel more of what I felt um, when I was around people like this. So I love that you brought that up. I agree. And even with the news, so I'm, I think, two years now without listening to news and a lot of my, because I deal with a lot of, you know, senior executives in corporate. And when I declare that I don't watch the news or they're, you know, getting a bit of banter about something, a lot of them are shocked and horrified that I don't listen to the news. But I focus my energies on where I can affect positive change, not on making myself feel worse or, you know, a sense of despair for things that I can't change. So that's a conscious choice for me. And it's very, very important, isn't it, in relation to, um, our mental health. You also brought up something very interesting. You spoke about gratitudes and appreciations. So I really like the way you put that. And I guess it shifts someone's focus. So you said that, you know, an appreciation could be that they happen to get up and and have a shower that day. Um, And it may seem like a little thing, but for someone who's suffering debilitating mental um, health issues or days, which many people go through, getting up and having a shower and brushing their teeth, is actually a big win. Um, Absolutely. So I think for anyone who is listening that has suffered or or is or does in the future suffer from mental health issues, not just the gratitude, because we all know we should be grateful for a roof over our head and that we've got a meal and all those sorts of things, and they are absolutely amazing things to feel grateful for. But when you're at your peak of um, suffering, you know, severe mental health um, days and and periods in your life or seasons. You know, you should be grateful for that, and you are, but it just doesn't seem to be enough to shift where your uh, mind is yeah. at. So I like that you brought up appreciations because I think it really shifts your focus, doesn't it? Absolutely. And it, when it's just the gratitude, it's like it resides in the, the realm of thought, not necessarily the realm of really feeling. And if you can find any little glimmer to, you know, to feel proud of yourself or appreciate yourself and do that practice on a daily basis and five things like finding three to five things is really, really difficult. So definitely, I would encourage your listeners, no matter what their state of mental health, to to give it a go. Just see how they how they feel about themselves. Even give it a go for a week. I would love to do this right now with you. Can yep. you share with, and I'm putting you on the spot, <laughs> can you share with our audience three things that you appreciate about yourself? Okay. Okay. Oh, I am on the spot. And now I'm asking the questions right, so you can't turn around and ask me. <laughs> so I'm appreciate. Thinking, oh, what are, what are the three things I would say? <laughs> so I think, you know, I'm, I'm going to look at this a little bit more broadly at the moment, and I'm going to say that I appreciate that I really got help, asked for help and accepted help when I really, really needed it. Yes, I could beat myself up that I did not, you know, get it earlier. But 
when it came down to it, I went, sought and accepted the help that I needed when the time came. So that would be number one. Number two is I appreciate that you know, through a lot of turmoil, uh, I really did dig deep and decided that I'm making the choice to talk about my mental health, um, you know, for, for the good of others and not just talk about it, but develop a program and to proactively go out into organisations where I think is where I can affect the most change. But having that deep down courage to shine the spotlight on, light on myself, uh, you know, for but um, leader and say, hey, I am one of the, you know, one in five people who suffer with mental illness in Australia. And this is the face of someone who has struggled with those. So that would be second appreciation, finding that courage. Um, third would be appreciate that I'm not perfect. So I have all these great ideas about how I would love to transform corporate organizations and their whole mental health culture. But you know, that's aspirational and I need to accept and, um, you know, not have my perfectionistic streaks kind of get to, to push that too, too far. So it's just be accepting of what I can do um, and, you know, realise that I can't change everything, but I'm doing the best I can every day. That's wonderful. I have a um, thank you for sharing all of those, by the way. I really appreciate it. Having put you on the spot, I have a saying that, you know, I love that I am perfectly imperfect every single day. So, I really like that last one that you said because striving to be perfect is just setting yourself up for failure, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah, you know, getting things done is better than perfect because there is no such thing as perfect. So just keep going forward with that, you know, with that good intention and, you know, buying towards action and, yes, good things will happen. Okay. I want to talk to you about the role of gender. Sort of do you think that gender plays a role in the mental health issues we are seeing in the workplace? I, you know, is it more prevalent in one gender? Do, do you feel that women or men prioritise their mental health and overall health easier? Is it one gender that prioritises it more than the other, taking care of themselves in your experience in, in organisational um, environments? Um, I don't. I think that we, we know human behaviour and human behaviour is that, you know, women generally, and I'm not big on generalizations, but we do have to work in generalizations, that women generally will talk and work out things together. Men, on the other hand, and I guess I would even go a little bit deeper in the corporate organizations to say that the more senior the male leader, the less likely that they have that sense of connection with people around them in the organization where they feel they can talk openly and have those courageous conversations about their own mental health. And people when they think you know they're hearing all this about mental health and it's like it's not just about mental illness you know people in the workplace go through you know they have kids they um you know they have uh, financial issues they may have gambling concerns they may have uh, they're going through a divorce or have you know family relationship issues we all have our, our ups and downs in life that impact our mental health and generally women will confide in other women and do that soundboard and offer advice where men are less likely to do so. And I think that's why we see such um, a push for a change in, you know, men not being as, you know, blokey, pardon the expression, but really, you know, tapping into that more caring and um, courageous side to, to tap into how they're feeling and sharing those feelings with others. And, you know, the, the statistics even from, uh, for, particularly from suicide standpoint, so one in eight people in Australia choose to take their own life every day and all those six are male so you know wow. it's, it's an unacceptable statistic absolutely unacceptable and you know that, that that's higher than the the national road toll 
yet we don't seem to do as much for suicide prevention as we do for demerits for for driving fast or doing breath tests. Yeah. Do you think that um, particularly with men and, and male leaders that one of the reasons they don't talk about it, obviously women have always had their circle that they would sit and, and gather and weave and do all those sorts of things together, yeah. but that men may see it as a sign of weakness to actually talk about their challenges and their struggles rather than a sign of strength to ask for help and to talk yeah. about I feel, there, I feel there's a shift in that. So I feel with a lot of the awareness campaigns that are going on about mental health and we're, you know, slowly breaking down stigma. So I think a lot of men, even particularly, you know, men towards the end of their careers, um, you know, who wouldn't have necessarily grown up or entered the workforce with as much talk about mental health as there is today. But even for them, they realize now that it's not necessarily a sign of weakness to talk about it. I think the issue is they don't know how to start. They don't know, you know, they don't know how to go from one day not talking about it to striking up a conversation with someone the following day or even being able to assess, engage who is their trusted go to person. So with and they, you know, there's definitely stigma still associated with, you know, going to a therapist, but not everybody needs to go to a therapist. And I think for me, when I was deciding, do I want to go down, you know, psychology path and therapy path or do I become, you know, have add life coaching to my overall, you know, change capability? life coaching was it for me because I can have those conversations with those senior leaders that tap into you know deep conversations about who they are what makes them happy and what is making them unhappy so I think if I can encourage senior male leaders if you don't feel that you need therapy per se find a mentor or find a coach have someone that you can have those conversations at least until you get the training wheels off where you're you know starting to feel comfortable having those courageous conversations because again if you invest in yourself and your own mental well-being that will have a ripple effect out towards your caring towards others and the the courageous conversations that you will actually you know be the one to initiate within your organization yeah and also um in your home i guess in in your relationship and in your family it'll have a a huge impact in relation to organisations taking an active role in mental health of their employees, how does that impact morale, their bottom dollar, because at the end of the day that is super important to all of these organisations, you know, they're they're in it to make money, absenteeism of their employees yeah. and overall productivity? Yes, yeah. So I think this is definitely one of the biggest challenges that I have. So, you know, my company name is The Happy Path. And, you know, if you walk into any corporate organization with a name like that, it's almost like you get dismissed instantly as being a, you know, oh, you're someone who's going to come in and do all the warm and fluffy stuff. And, you know, the, the the statistics are there. The research is there to show that any time that you're going to focus on improving the mental well-being of your organization. So there's a PwC joint report that was done with Beyond Blue um, about creating mentally healthy workplaces. And they particularly honed in on the return on investment. And their findings were that for every one dollar spent in corporate organizations that was proactively spent towards uh, mental well-being, that there was a return on investment of 2.3 percent. So and that was, you know, obviously dependent on the organization, dependent on how that change was implemented. And that's why they do recommend that that the change be managed from the top down um, and you have good change management disciplines as part of that. But the data is there, the research is there to support the fact that if you do invest, then you will get your return on investment. So that's the talking to the, you know, the financial brain, the facts and figures. But, you know, I encourage leaders to tap into their, you know, tap into your inner self, tap into your gut. 
you know when a good thing is a good thing. If you come from a good place and you care, you truly care about your employees and you invest in their health and well-being, we know that we do see people going the extra mile. So instead of trying to push them to go the extra mile because they feel they belong, because they feel engaged within the workplace, then they will go that extra mile because they feel like family. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would have to agree with that, having worked in um, the banking industry in a couple of different big banks, which I will not name. <laughs> um, I definitely, I mean, I worked in, in one straight out of high school and then in one, you know, maybe 10 years ago, um, I definitely saw a shift and change in how they were um, managing the, men, the mental health and, and the well-being, I'll call it a well-being yeah. of their, um, their employees. It was definitely a lot of positive change. And it is great to see that. And it is, you know, I guess different organizations do it at different pace. And it does take some convincing in some organizations and some are not there yet at all about investing in the overall well-being of their people. You've been, it's been so wonderful to talk to you, Diane. I really appreciate um, all the time and everything you have shared. Absolutely love you. Care for self, care for others and having courageous conversations. Is there anything that you would like to leave, final thought you'd like to leave our audience with in relation to if they are? in the workplace, any type of workplace, suffering from mental health issues and maybe not having conversations, just a couple of things that they could could maybe do to help them where they're at right now. So I think the first thing I would say is that if you are suffering with your mental health at the moment, to remind you, and this is often hard to hear, but you're, you are responsible for your own mental health and you are responsible for your own self-care. So have a look at how you're spending your time every day to see what can I do to be more proactive about my mental health and whether that is go for a walk, do your gratitudes and appreciation or even just have some positive inputs, whether it's TED Talks, whether it's um, audiobooks, something that lifts your spirits. Secondly, I would say if you can find the courage, look around your organisation, look around your friends, your family, pick one person and imagine, first of all, having a conversation with them about your mental health. So just role play it in your mind and that will help give you the courage to actually go there and tap them on the shoulder and start to have that conversation. Now, make sure you pick someone that is going to be supportive and encouraging towards you, not someone who either will freak out or dismiss what you're about to tell them. And the last thing I would say is just be kind to yourself. Our, you know, overthinking and mental health issues are really can be a form of self-torture. We go through, we really beat ourselves up about these things, but find a way to be kind to yourself every day and doing those, you know, gratitudes and appreciations are really a beautiful way to do that. That's wonderful. And they're great actionable steps that you have given and shared to our audience. I really, really appreciate your time and all your sharing. If people want to find some more about what you're doing or um, they'd like to introduce you into their organisation, where can they go to find you, Diane? Okay, so I am the best way to contact me is either through uh, my LinkedIn profile. So um, just look for Diane McCabe or The Happy Path. Um, emailing me directly at Diane McCabe, all one word, at thehappypath.com.au. And I believe you'll have some of this information in your podcast notes. Absolutely. Um, and I'm also on Facebook and Instagram under The Happy Path. Beautiful. So I'll make sure I pop those links in the notes so that people want to reach out to you, they can. Once again, thank you so much for all the information that you have shared with, with all of us, Diane. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Fatima. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to the show. I truly hope you have found it beneficial and have taken some value from it. Hopefully, a lot. 
If you did, please, please share this show with anyone you feel may need to hear it. I would also absolutely love if you would take a minute or two to review this show on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever platform you happen to be listening to it on. With your help, we can accomplish my mission to positively impact 10 million lives. That would be so awesome. Now, if you want to connect with me or my guests on other platforms, or if you want to send me an email with questions or ideas of guests to interview, please check out the show notes. I am so incredibly grateful to have had your time today, and I can't wait to have you on the next episode. Have a great day.